You're listening to a not-for-print podcast, independent Australian podcasting. This episode of All My Friends Are In Bar Bands was recorded on the land of the Wurundjeri and the Tharawal people. We pay our respects to Elders past and present and acknowledge that sovereignty was never ceded. This always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Enjoy the episode. It's David James Young here for another week of All My Friends Are In Bar Bands. Thanks so much for tuning in and checking this out. You've already seen the title. You are already, hopefully, as excited as I am. Holy shit. Today's guest is Something For Kate. I've been listening to Something For Kate since I was probably eight or nine years old, and I heard the song Electricity on what was either a 100% hits or a hit machine, something along those lines, but... Uh, I was hooked from there. Uh, Obviously, Monsters was a big hit when I was a kid. When I started listening to Triple J, they were all over that with the official fiction and then Desert Lights. Uh, They've been a big part of my life for a very long time. They were one of the last bands that I got to see uh, pre-Rona when they played in Wollongong back in start of March with Missy Higgins and Kate Miller-Heidke, previous guest of the show, Kate Miller-Heidke. That's so weird to say. Oh, my God. (laughs) But we had Paul and Steph from the band, which actually also makes it the first married couple to do All My Friends Are In Bar Bands, which is pretty, pretty sick. Uh, They have a brand new album out today. It is called The Modern Medieval. And uh, yeah, very excited to be uh, getting this out on today of all days because it is such a great record and I'm so, so stoked that uh, it is out there in the world for people to check out. Steph and Paul were so great to chat to, had so many great stories. They obviously both have a a long and storied history in Australian music. Paul is an accomplished solo artist, and uh, Steph was also in a a very formative 90s band called Sandpit. We get into all of that and a bunch of other stuff in this conversation, and uh, yeah, it was a real, real treat. Just a heads up on the sound on this one, uh, because Paul and Steph were recording together, they didn't have headphones on, so my audio was coming through at the same time uh, on their mic, Uh, so... Uh, thanks to a bit of uh, wizardry from uh, the dear Paul McQuirter, who engineered this episode. Big thank you to Paul. We were able to kind of skirt around that. It's a little disjointed, but like mostly salvageable. And yeah, I think it comes through generally pretty well. So a big thank you to Paul McQuirter for fixing the sound on this one. And while we're on the note of thank yous, big thank you to Paul and Steph, obviously. And a big thank you to Mariam Dib at EMI for helping to set this one up. Won't leave you too much longer. Just a quick reminder that this podcast is made possible with the help and support of people just like yourself. If you like what you hear, please rate and review over on Apple Podcasts or indeed wherever you get your podcasts from. Don't forget to tell people about what we're doing. Perhaps you've got some friends that are something for Kate fans, and so well they should be. Uh, This would be a, a great place to start, but also a bunch of other great episodes to check out as well. And if you have the means and you would like to keep the lights on over at DJYHQ, you can do so by supporting me on Patreon for as little as $1 a month. You will gain access to bonus content, writing... 
playlists, and a myriad of bits and bobs from my life as a freelance music journalist, a podcaster, and a musician. Head over to patreon.com slash David James Young for a little bit more information on that. That is p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash David James Young. In the meantime, if you'd like to get in touch, barbandspod at gmail.com, B-A-R-B-A-N-D-S-P-O-D. You can also hit up the Not For Print Podcast Network on Instagram at Not For Print Pods. You can hit me up on Instagram at DJY Writes. Follow along on Facebook at David James Young Writes. Or head over to all my friends are in barbands.com. Links to all of those are in the show notes. Right now, let's hang upside down from the overpass and discover something about the world. This is my chat with Paul Dempsey and Stephanie Ashworth from Something For Kate. Now we don't see each other All that much anymore You've been busy going through a phase I've been kicking down every door I'm David James Young, and all my friends are in bar bands. Today, I would like to introduce you to my friends, Something for Kate. G'day, James. Uh, David, sorry. No, you want to start that again? <laughs> it's, it's fine. James is my middle name. I'm in there somewhere. <laughs> Please, introduce yourselves. Hi, this is Steph. Uh, and I'm Paul, and uh, I, I, I sing and play guitar in Something for Kate. And I'm on the bass. <laughs> Hell yeah. <laughs> it's Tuesday afternoon. Uh, I am here in the greatest city in the world, Wollongong, New South Wales, Australia. We are live via correspondence once again, and uh, something for Kate uh, in the recently unlocked Melbourne. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you very much. Feels good. Team effort. Yeah, yeah. Uh, have you uh, explored outside of the, the 25-kilometre ki- radius yet? No, don't. still haven't. Been out of the five kilometre radius, actually. Um, Maybe pushing seven. Yeah. For rehearsals. <laughs> yeah, small steps. Yeah, obviously, um, you've taken to this considerably well. Like, you know, you've been in touch with a lot of other musicians in similar positions over the last, you know, couple of months. And, you know, you've reached out to them and, you know, performed with them through, you know, the very room that you're in now at the moment. And, uh, yeah, has that been a, a positive kind of thing just to, to find something within all of this shit show to just be like, you know, we can still connect and we can still be musicians and comrades and friends and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, when all of this began, you know, sort of in March, April, when the whole country sort of uh, went into lockdown, you know, there was a big rush. Lots of people were, you know, playing live on the internet on all different sort Mm. of platforms. And I was initially a little bit wary of it, of just sort of, you know, just kind of being there all the time, uh, I don't know, I just wasn't sure how I felt about it. But then when the lockdown kind of ended and then when it started again for Melbourne, the you know, the mood really kind of went south and uh, it just really felt like people were really down uh, in Melbourne. Yeah. And so that that's kind of really what prompted me. I just really wanted to just do something to, you know, just give people something, give people five minutes of, of escape. And it, it felt really good. I was actually, I was surprised how much I ended up enjoying it and how much I came to almost depend on having that connection. Uh, it certainly certainly made it all a little less lonely, I think. Yeah, for sure, for sure. This is the first time of us officially 
uh, properly meeting, but I did meet you guys when you came through and played in Wollongong. This was in 2013, I believe. This was this was the Leave Your Soul to Science tour. Yeah. Uh, with uh, a couple of previous guests of the show were there that night. Uh, a young up-and-comer by the name of Courtney Barnett was uh, opening for you guys. Yeah. Uh, and I believe uh, previous guests of the show, Lindsay McDougall, also got up and played electricity with you guys as well. <laughs> That's right. He did. Dueling guitar battle. Yeah. Um, <laughs> someone someone made a funny image out of that. They turned our guitar necks into lightsabers and uh, it was pretty funny. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, that's classic. Uh, I also uh, slightly got in a, a little bit of trouble at your last solo show uh, at the Oxford Art Factory for your uh, doing the harmonies along too loud. <laughs> no, I, I remember. There, there was no trouble at all. I, I, I think I... Um, I think I complimented you and, and encouraged you to... Uh... Oh, you did. The person in front of me wasn't as thrilled. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, I think something for Kate crowds uh, and, you know, at my solo shows as well, they're always encouraged to sing along and they and they more often than not do uh, very loudly. So I yeah. think, uh, you know, I, I think most people who come to our shows have come to expect a bit of that. But you're yeah. a very, very good singer. Your harmonies were bang on. Oh, thank you very much. That's very kind. <laughs> I mean, you wrote them, so you, you know you know how the harmonies work, man. So, <laughs> uh, so I begin these by tracing back the initial interest in music, specifically where it changed over from being something that maybe you were watching on TV, listening to on the radio, etc., to being this is what I want to do. I want to sing. I want to play instruments. I want to be in a band. That sort of thing. Uh, Steph, we'll start with you. Can you tell us about how music kind of factored into your childhood and your upbringing, and if there was a kind of switch on moment for you? It wasn't a particularly musical household, to be honest, um, my household. I think, uh, yeah, we, we, there wasn't a lot of music played in the house and uh, it wasn't until I think my brother, uh, who was older, um, he, some of his older friends, some of his friends would come over and play Seven Inches in my brother's room and I could hear them playing um, really interesting stuff. And, yeah. you know, I was like the little sister with the, like this, you know, um, up to the door um, yeah, yeah. Having being like the pesky little sister spying on what they were doing and being, you know, told to go away and all of that. Um, it wasn't so much what they were doing. It was more that I was trying to listen to these really interesting records that they were playing. And, you know, they were playing stuff, I guess, a lot of English stuff. The Cure and mm. The Smiths and, you know, lots of great English guitar bands, The Clash. Yeah. Really cool kind of post-punk stuff it just really kind of sparked something in me and I began down my own sort of listening journey and um, you know spending all available funds on buying seven inches and buying music magazines from that were imported from England at the local news agents and so I guess the journey began there where where I started to you know discover more and more of these sorts of really interesting bands that that didn't sound like what was on the radio at the time. I think I started messing around with keyboards in my room and, you know, and I I got like a trumpet scholarship at school and and then studied a bit of classical guitar. Yeah, right. But didn't really, um, you know, I was very young, you know, I was 12 years old or Mm. whatever and and didn't didn't really sort of make any decision to to join a band at that point. I think I I was just really young and really in love with music and the idea of punk music and... Um, subcultures and all of the whole culture of that. So it yeah. wasn't it wasn't until I was you know older and at university that I um, actually you know um, started playing in bands. 
Um, so it's right. quite a yeah, long, yeah, yeah. it's quite a long gap. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. 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 Paul, what about you? Well, I, I grew up in a really musical household. My mother was a professional singer. Uh, so she was gigging every night. She mm-hmm. did like nearly 300 gigs a year for wow. uh, like a decade. My, I have three older siblings who are also very musical. Uh, and my grandmother was in the house and she was a piano player. So virtually everybody yeah. played some instrument or sang uh, or both. Mum and, and a couple of my sisters uh, did opera training you know mum's band would would frequently come home from work with her and and sort of just continue the gig uh in our lounge room uh so i remember you know as a little kid being picked up out of bed uh to come into the lounge room or i'd stagger out of bed you know at whatever hour of the morning because i'd been woken up by you know people in the lounge room singing and playing instruments so you know music was just everywhere and it was sort of expected that at the very least you would sing if there were people over everyone irish family my parents migrated from ireland with my sisters and so you know any sort of irish get together involves music and singing and and you're expected you have to join in you have to sing or or play an instrument or something so it was like it was it was an expectation. Uh, I you know I, I've always loved music and I started playing instruments as soon as I could as soon as I could reach the piano I was you know trying to copy my sisters or my, or my grandmother or and then I picked up a guitar when I was about eight or nine years old and other instruments as well and basically any instrument that found its way into my hands I would I would give a pretty good shot at figuring out how to play and I guess so it wasn't until I was a teenager that I started actually like writing songs with friends and having you know garage bands and stuff. Um, but I, you know, it was something that I, I just always, it's just, yeah, it's always just felt like a very much a part of my makeup. And I kind of always thought that I would be playing music yeah. a lot, if not for a career, then, <laughs> it, it, you know, it would be the only other thing I was doing. So did the two of you both grow up like in Melbourne? Or were you in different parts of the country? Yeah, I was in Perth. Right. So, like, suburban Perth or, like, right near the city or whereabouts were you? Uh, actually, Fremantle. Right. Okay. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Which has got kind of its own music scene as well. Like, were you kind of frequenting shows and, like, going to see bands when you were kind of, like, a teen and into your 20s, like, around that time? Yeah. No, I, I, I was in Fremantle because I was going to the performing arts school. I went to... Ah, um, yeah, yeah. I was acting, studying uh, acting. Part of that course involved sound and audio engineering as well. But I was sneaking into punk rock gigs as a teenager. But then I left Perth and I moved to Sydney to um, transfer to Sydney University. Yeah, so I I was still very very young, just, yeah, sneaking into gigs and, and then moved to Sydney and um, was, you know, continued going to gigs, obviously, and, and then transferred to Melbourne University and it was all a university tour. Um, yeah, and, yeah. Um, <laughs> Uh, but you know, all the while, all the while, um, you know, spending every night going to different, seeing different bands, and yeah. And and Paul, whereabouts were you? Uh, I was all over the place. Uh, we moved a lot, like every every two years, virtually, we moved somewhere else. Uh, mostly around Victoria, Queensland, uh, on the Gold Coast for a couple of years. Suburban Melbourne, regional Victoria. Um, we were all over the place. So it would have been difficult to kind of like latch on to any kind of like local scene or any kind of local music community then? Well, yeah, but also, you know, having gone to like 10 different schools, being able to play guitar 
uh, or any musical instrument pretty well. It, it mm. meant that sh- whatever new school I showed up with, it was pretty easy to make friends because you were automatically identified as like a person who could play or, or even a, a person who owned an electric guitar. That was enough for you to yeah. make a handful of friends. Yeah, like m- music is a great way to meet people and being able to play music is, is an even better way to make friends because people, you know, people figuring out how to play instruments just want to be able to play with other people. Yeah, that's you know, it. You, you need someone to be able to play rhythm guitar so that you can practice your shredding. So, um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, so... Um, <laughs> Yeah, I yeah I didn't really get like embedded in any particular scene. I don't know how much they existed around that time mm. anyway. I mean, I you know I lived in suburban parts of Melbourne. Like the Gold Coast didn't have a music scene then. You know, uh, the Mornington yeah, yeah. Peninsula didn't really have a music scene. Uh, you know. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What do you both remember about the first times that you played live, Steph? How like you mentioned that you didn't start playing until you were at uni so like how old were you when you first played on stage for the first time uh that's a really good question yeah i don't know <laughs> i i mean the first the first show i did was in a earlier version of the of a band i was in called sandpit and actually right yeah we, yeah 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 we did like i remember we did a party at um and i remember like some of the guys from Tism were there, and so I was really nervous. Was- I mean, as far as you knew, it could it could have been anyone. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah, the rumor was. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. no, um, and um, yeah, that was just it was like a house party, and um, yeah, it was horrible. I, I remember just sweating and just just feeling just yeah. feeling ill. But I think the first yeah. actual gig I did was at the Tote in Melbourne. I don't know how old I was. I would have been. Fit- pretty young uh would have been yeah i don't know 20 or something horrible horrible i think i spent my the whole show with my back to the audience <laughs> <laughs> classic was that upstairs or downstairs at the tote D- uh downstairs in the main yeah, I, yeah i guess it's all in the, in the main room yeah 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah it was pretty intimidating i think oh god yeah i can imagine paul what about you how old were you i was uh, i would 11 years old and it was yeah my, right yeah this so right after we moved to queensland so I, I started high school in Melbourne. I started year seven in Melbourne. Mm. And then halfway through that year, we moved to the Gold Coast. And high school starts later up there. So I had to go back to primary school. Uh, year, year seven up there is still primary school. So right, halfway yeah. through the year, I was uh, at St. At Augustine's Primary School uh, in Corumban. And at the end of that year, like I said, I mean, it was pretty quick. Within a few months of moving there, I, you know, I met some other guys who were playing instruments and we started a band and we played at the year seven graduation. Uh, I was on bass, but uh, yeah, I mean, that was the first time I, you know, we, we plugged in uh, on a stage with lights and, and a PA and, and um, played in, in front of like actual other humans, mostly, you know, other 11 year olds, 12 year olds, yeah. but uh, a lot of parents and but yeah, I remember just like I was playing bass, like I said, and I just remember like shaking and just being really blown away by how loud it was, you know, because we had played in the garage and, and rehearsed, but it, but we had no idea what the PA, like we'd, we'd never been, you know, mic'd up. Um, mm. So actually hearing the sound we were making coming out of a PA system was, was kind of uh, mind altering. It was, it was covers, I'm guessing. Yeah, we played uh, Good Times, Bad Times by Led Zeppelin. Uh, sweet, yeah. sweet child of mine, which was like the song of the moment, and you really got me by the Kinks and Lola, by the, also by the Kinks. 
smashing. Yeah. That's a that's a that's a solid set list. It was a punch. You can get, you can get away with set. that in a pub today, man. Like <laughs> yeah, but yeah, I mean, it was it was only a four song set, but it it felt like um, you know, Glastonbury. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Uh, so uh, I guess from here we'll talk about some of the bands that the two of you were doing uh, before something for Kate. So Steph, it was it was some iteration of Sandpit, your first band you mentioned. Yeah, I mean it, it's sort of you know a band that began and the members just kept changing and evolving uh, into and then and it became Sandpit. I think the only original members were Brendan and myself, but you know we right, had yeah. we had rotating. There was another guitarist, a rhythm guitarist, and a different drummer. Um, but it, I think Brendan and I remained the original ones that ended up, you know, evolving into Sandpit. What do you remember about kind of like getting out there and and, and playing under that moniker for the first time? Like, uh, obviously, you'd kind of had you'd probably built up a bit of a rapport in the in the local scene, like. Uh, how, did things kind of improve from that in, very intimidating first tote show? <laughs> took a while. It took a while. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, like, uh, I think that the first year I, I was horrified of the day I'd wake up and there'd be a gig that day. I was actually horrified um, all day. Couldn't think about anything else. But we, we, and we did quite a lot of international supports quite quickly, quite early on, you know. Um, sure, yeah. And it was, you know, quite... Uh, quite a, a quick sort of thing from the rehearsal room to you know being on stage at the forum <laughs> supporting oh you know, sure you know yeah. supporting these international acts it's a bit blurry but it but i know it was a whirlwind of terror <laughs> yeah <laughs> i think you know people hey, do you feel like you're more at peace with that now like do you feel like you know after decades of performing you've kind of mm. I come to terms with it a little bit better, yeah. yeah. I have my days because you know we have you had big breaks in between tours, uh, touring, and yeah. um, you know we'll go for long periods where Paul will be doing solo stuff, and then you know something I'll have a child, and then you know we'll go on tour, and I'll just mm-hmm. be, it'll be horrific all over again. I'm not going to lie, like I. I yeah. I have to come to terms with it all over again. Um, I'm not. I'm not naturally. Uh, you know. I think there's the. There is an assumption that people on stage are extrovert, but they're not always. And yeah, totally. I. You know. I'm not. I. You know. I studied acting. I did all this, but actually, it's really against my nature. Actually, yeah, I don't sure. know. You know. Like, <laughs> what am I doing? So there's a bit of that again for me. And you know, once we're once we're a week into a tour, I'm fine. But I don't really don't like the first few shows of a tour I just um yeah I have to admit that I find it just a process a mental process that that I really have to school myself through Paul uh you were playing through bands in in high school and stuff like that I'm assuming yeah um so that band I was just talking about was sort of about the first thing and you know we we sort of kept playing things took a decidedly thrash metal turn for a while there as they want to do yeah yeah exactly it was you know yeah yeah then we moved to the back to victoria to the mornington peninsula and that was probably you know that's where i guess things started to feel really i guess i started to feel much more serious about it i was you know 14 years old i guess and i started to meet a couple of people that really became you know i guess just really integral to my sort of path I guess. And mm. we started writing original stuff together. And, and we together, you know, this is myself and a guy called Simon Morrison 
and his brother Joel Morrison. Uh, Joel owns the old bar now. Right, yeah. Simon uh, is living in Germany, still playing in punk rock bands. Uh, but those those guys and a couple of other guys down on the peninsula, um, they, they were just really important relationships for me. And we started, you know, we together we kind of discovered much more uh, hardcore punk stuff, discovered, you know, bands like Black Flag and, and Fugazi and Sonic Youth and... All yeah, sort of, of course, yeah. And, and that really kind of tipped me in a different direction from the sort of, you know, shredding metal stuff that I was listening to. And um, we started writing original songs together and we, we played some gigs together down there, a lot of like all ages push events. Um, you know, yeah. we, op- we opened for Spider Bait and, um, you know, when we were kind of 15-year-old kids. So... Uh, that that I guess is when it all started to feel much more real to me, and the idea that you know once I'd wrapped up high school that I could move to the city and and get serious about it, it all started to feel much more real and possible. Um, yeah, and I, of course I met Clint uh, in high school on the Mornington Peninsula as well, and we started playing together, and you know here we are a, a long time later. <laughs> <laughs> a very long time, yeah. <laughs> well, let, let's cut then to the first Something for Kate show. Where was that? Uh, that was at the Punters Club uh, in Fitzroy on Monday the 12th of September 1994. Uh, we were the first on a three-band bill. Um, and uh, I think it was $3 entry. <laughs> Bargain, and, yeah, uh, and the Punters Club <laughs> sort of was our. It was like our home base for a few years there. Still yeah. very, still very, very sad that the Punters Club uh, is is no longer operating. It was such a yeah, um, indeed, yeah. It, it was such an incredible part of uh, Melbourne's music scene. And Steph, what was yours? Punters Club. Uh, but oh, also the Punters. Two years Fucking later, full circle. I love it. Yeah, I think it was no. Hold on, three years later. Four, Four years later. Years later. <laughs> Yeah, you can see who's uh, not the memory, the memory person. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we got an archivist on our hands. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it was so. Ni- what was it? Ninety seven. Uh, oh, it no. was ninety eight. Ninety eight. I think Paul got up on stage and did a bunch of solo um, songs, and Clint was feeling really ill. He was actually quite ill with gastro at the time, and he and I were like, "Oh God." You know, he had oh, his God. own he had his own thing going on, and I was like, "I really don't want to do this." Yeah. <laughs> so. <laughs> That was my, my first show at the Punters Club with Something for Kate. Yeah. yeah. Classic. Uh, I'm, I'm assuming that Sandpit and Something for Kate had played together a bunch of, up to that point. Yeah, we'd, we'd, we'd done quite a few shows together. I mean, I think that we were on a lineup together when I first was talking to Paul. Um, I mean, I, at the time I was, I was at university, but I was also working in a record store and doing Sandpit. I was very aware of something for Kate and, you know, I'd been to see them quite a bit and I had, we had played quite a lot of shows with them. So I knew, you know, um, I knew them very well. We yeah. met at the, sure, yeah, we yeah. met at an all ages show at the Central Club mm-hmm. uh, in Richmond on a Saturday afternoon. I love that. That's beautiful. <laughs> in 1995. It was like it was yesterday. It's all there. It's all there. (laughs) Yeah, and then so we we met, and yeah, our first bass player Julian sort of had had said that he was, uh, you know, he he was sort of done with the band. He 
he was getting married and moving to the country and just wasn't up for the constant touring and stuff anymore. So we we were looking for a, a bass player to replace Julian around the start of 1997. And yeah. Steph almost joined then, mm. um, but didn't because Sandpit was so busy and, you know, all different plans and stuff. But yeah. yeah, so it was a couple of years later, a year later. Yeah, we kind of touched on on Steph kind of developing uh, as a performer with with Sandpit and and you know kind of like getting thrown into those bigger shows and stuff like that. Like, uh, was that a similar thing for you, Paul, with the the kind of first few years of something for Kate up up to and including that first record? Like, what do you remember about those first few years of of something for Kate and I guess learning to be a frontman and a performer and that sort of stuff. <laughs> Yeah, the um, learning to be a frontman and performer, I feel like, is still an ongoing project. But certainly for the yeah, first few course, years yeah. of, of Something for Kate, it was quite uh, difficult. And there was a lot of the atmosphere at our shows and, and specifically on the stage was often quite frenetic and aggressive. And we would like yell and scream at each other on stage, mostly me yelling and screaming at Clinton Julian. There was so much I didn't understand about uh, PA systems and, like, monitors and, and, like, how to get a good sound on stage and just how to... And, honestly, it was all just... uh, I would get really easily frustrated if it didn't... If I couldn't hear things, if it didn't sound... You know, because so often when you're playing your first bunch of gigs and you don't have a proper sound person or whatever and, you know, often the person doing the sound is, like you know someone who's also just figuring it out um and so there's like squalling feedback and things going wrong and you know so it took me a long time to realize just how to cope with those situations without being a dick um so but oddly enough i think that sort of drew people to our shows because yeah yeah well i think we developed a bit of a reputation that our our shows could sort of turn into these chaotic affairs um, yeah. So that was, yeah, I definitely remember all of that. I also, I do remember as well, though, that no, we didn't really get any international support slots. There was sort of a a cabal that had that covered and only certain types of bands, um, shows like that, and we were decidedly not one of them. It's, it's still interesting to me. We were drawing lots of people to our shows and, and really building a following, but it, it seemed in many ways uh, in spite of uh, the kind of Melbourne music scene at the time. Yeah, right, right. What was the first t- uh, international support that Something for Kate did? That I'm going to have to take a minute to remember. Uh, it, I don't. I mean, I think the first international band that we played with might have been the Arches of Loaf. Uh, oh, true. They yeah. had a sort of a small little festival in a car park in Paran. So we weren't like technically the opener. Yeah. I think like the first, it might have been like Swerve Driver. Oh, true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Pavement. That was after Swerve oh. Driver. Yeah. There was a Death Cab tour in 2003, wasn't there? Yeah, they opened for us. We bought- Isn't that surreal? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, they were kind of just, I think, on the cusp of like, like I think it was like, Right around the time that, uh, you know, characters on the OC started mentioning their name. Yeah, started name dropping them. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, but, you know, like we were, we were fans of the band and, and they were like 
super excited to be invited to come to Australia. And it was kind of even, even like while they were here, it was starting to blow up for them in America. You could even yeah, sort yeah. of detect a, a level of impatience that they wanted to get home. <laughs> yeah. But that was a fun tour. What was the first uh, like proper Something for Kate tour that the two of you were on? Like, Was that the Beautiful Sharks album tour? No, we, we did Sandpit and Something for Kate tour together mm. quite a long time before that, before I had joined. Right. Oh, you mean, oh, no, there was tours where I played in both bands. Yeah. You know. Oh, wow. Yeah. Like, we did tours where Something for Kate played open for, no, Sandpit opened for Something for Kate. <laughs> and, uh, or on a, you know, bunch of, a bill, like a touring bill, there was like three or four bands and Something for, Sandpit were on just before Something for Kate. So I really had to have my act together to, yeah. to be doing both every night. We, we, that was a, I can't remember. I think that was a national tour. I remember the West Australian shows were the ones where you were playing in both bands. Mm. But then I guess the first... There was a fair bit of crossover while I was in both bands. Um, where we yeah, t- where course. we toured together, yeah, and then and then when I was ping ping all over the place doing both separately as well, hmm. so yeah, it was like towards the end of our first album, Elsewhere for Eight Minutes. Towards the end of that kind of album, hmm. like the fourth single from that album came out, and I think that was like the first time we did shows around the country uh, with Steph and Clint and myself. At, at what point do you start noting that shift from yeah like you like you said you know you were pretty faithful like pub devotees and there's obviously a point where that crosses over into you know your metros and then your enmores and you know forums and like you know doing the forum in your own respect and like that sort of stuff i i'm guessing probably around like ekalaya that point like how are you kind of taking that on as a band like that's a big step to be taking like how are you kind of comprehending and kind of taking that all in between the immediate kind of camp of the three of you i think it's a pretty um like it's a pretty natural trajectory Mm. because you do open for lots of other bands so you know like before we ever headlined at the metro or the forum or something like that we had played on that stage half a dozen times opening for someone else so it's just getting used to the fact that you're last on the bill and that there's no one playing Mm. after you and it's actually your name on the banner outside but you have been on that Mm. stage before and you do know what to do um there's obviously a little more pressure that that all the people in that audience you know came to see you uh not someone after you i think i mean one of the first shows i remember something for kate headlining that i wasn't in the band yet but that i went to see was at melbourne university um, they were doing their album launch at, at Melbourne University in the really big room there where I had gone there to see Fugazi. I'd gone there to see the Lemonheads. I'd seen all these, you know, great American bands headlining there. And Something for Kate were already headlining there, uh, you know, before I joined. Um, they were already filling those rooms. So I think it was a fairly... I think they'd worked quite hard and sort of, you know, from my perspective at the time, I, I watched them and thought that they were really... Um, they really knew what they were doing. Well, they, they seem to, <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, from my perspective, like it was, it was yeah. a great show and they were like really, you know, it was really intriguing to watch. It seemed like they had really sorted all their stuff out. Um, and now you're in the band, you know, they've got no idea what they're doing. Those two. <laughs> no idea. <laughs> well, they have not so much myself. Yeah. <laughs> I bought the chaos with me. Yeah. I, I, 
I remember feeling at that time, though, that, you know, we were kind of achieving a lot in Melbourne and we were, like, playing to big crowds in Melbourne. And But, you know, this was 1997. Back mm. then, I remember that it didn't really mean much to the rest of the country until you sort of repeated the same success in Sydney. Yeah. Basically, until right, you sold yeah. out a Metro, it didn't, it didn't count to anyone outside of Melbourne because, you know, the whole music industry was based and still is largely based in Sydney. So it was all like, yeah, you sure. know, you've got to bring it to Sydney and, you know. So first time we actually headlined the Metro was on the Beautiful Sharks tour. And that to mm. me felt like a more high pressure gig than, you know, two years earlier when we headlined at Melbourne Uni. Um, yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What about doing international stuff for the first time? Like, uh, at what point do you kind of play outside of Australia for the first time? On the Beautiful Sharks album. But yeah. hadn't, hadn't you done shows, solo shows? I had done solo States. shows when we were mixing Elsewhere for Eight Minutes, our first album in New York. Uh, I did shows then. I did a solo show in New York and LA, but it wasn't something, it wasn't the band. So the first time something mm. for Kate played overseas was on the Beautiful Sharks tour. And uh, we did a US tour, and we also played in Japan. After Echolalia came out, we toured the US again, and then also Europe uh, and the UK. So, yeah, beautiful. What was that process like? Because, like, I can imagine, you know, playing to... It it, it must have felt like kind of like starting over again, you know, kind of bringing your music to, like, I'm, I'm assuming, like, a lot of largely unfamiliar audiences again. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think I think you you know you have to make some kind of peace with knowing that the context isn't there. You know, the context yeah. um, that comes with a band who develop in in one country and people understand how you fit into a a scene or you know where you're coming from. You just don't have that with you. Well, back then because you didn't have the internet so much, you didn't have social media, so. Mm. You were largely starting with no context. So people just don't know where you're coming from. And so, you know, yeah. like it can it can mean that you're seen in a completely different way. Yeah. Yeah. I think like the, yeah. inter- the internet means that, you know, these days someone can go play for the in the US or whatever for the first time and there's already a crowd waiting for them. Mm. But, you know, back then, yeah, it was like you, you started from scratch and it was that same thing of like getting used to terrible PA systems and not having your own sound person and just being thrown back into the chaos again of like having to make do in tiny venues with weird equipment and you know yeah yeah but it's an adventure you know I mean we loved it that first US tour was like crazy fun the one I've always wanted to to pick both of your brains about is obviously the reality tour which was you know at that point the probably you know still to this day one of the biggest things that this band has ever gotten to do like when you got that email i'm assuming it was an email or, or a call or something like that were you, were you genuinely thinking it was like a prank or something it's just like no fuck off we're not doing that <laughs> uh, can't tell you whether it was an email it's probably a phone call yeah, um a phone call. <laughs> yeah right oh well yeah i it's it's one of those like surreal it is yeah it's a bit of it's a bit surreal but I, I love the fact that Bowie was always... He always kept his finger in contemporary music. Like, he, yeah. he wasn't one of those artists who kind of stopped listening. You know, by the time he... You know, by the time the 90s were there or whatever, or the, he, that he just stopped being interested and stopped listening. I think he was always yeah. very engaged in, in what was happening musically everywhere. 
And you could always, you can see by the support bands he had around the world on that tour um, and subsequent tours that he he really, um, he really was interested in what was happening and and loved, you know, loved interesting music and um, didn't just go for the sort of standard thing. Like he always, he always delved. And so on that level, it's really nice to, to tour with him because... Oh, on so many levels, it's great to tour with him. But that's always a that was always a really nice um, thought that he he was very involved in picking his support bands and that he yeah went for the more interesting choice than the than perhaps what would be the you know the bigger artist or whatever. Yeah, it was it was yeah. nice to know that you had been selected. You know, mm. um, that's a good feeling. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Actually, I remember I interviewed you around the time of Strange Loop coming out, and uh, you told me that your kid had gotten in trouble at, at, at school because all the kids reckoned that he was lying about you two knowing Bowie. <laughs> yes, that's right. <laughs> yeah, I picked him up. For... And he had to come through and just like, oh, no, no, here's the photos. Yeah, he's telling the truth. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, his his uh, his teacher actually was kind of like, uh, you know, Miller's been saying this stuff, and and I, so I you know, I had to defend him. I, I wasn't like yeah. showing off, but I had to defend that he wasn't making stuff up. Yeah. <laughs> when you're young and you're starting out, like I guess, kind of getting a comprehension of your understanding of music, like you know, we're all kind of raised on these, you know, very cliched like rock biopics and documentaries and all that sort of stuff, and you know, we have this very obvious and kind of cliched idea of of a band's trajectory and there's always those moments in those you know kind of like vh1 or whatever where it's just like and this is the point where the band or the artist had made it quote unquote and it's it's this idealistic sort of thing but i feel like every musician deep down in one way or another has those moments for themselves whether it's getting to play in a certain country tour with a certain artist that like we just talked about or you know even just having your work recognized in some way shape or form like for you guys is there anything in particular that has really stuck out for you over the trajectory of of something for Kate in particular that has kind of just spoken to you in the sense of like if if like a younger me like a teenage me knew that I was doing this right now like they they straight up wouldn't believe me yeah I mean it's you know I think when you do start to sell out your own shows and I remember I remember the first time we ever sold out a a gig and it was you know 300 people at the punters club but the punters Mm. club was a place in my mind like it was a a place of myth and legend that you know i'd heard so many bands playing there and i'd seen so many bands play there that that was a real moment for me like oh my god like we've sold out the punters club and then it just kind of goes up then it's like oh we sold out the forum and then so all these little things happen but another one that sort of sticks out in my mind is um and again i don't really think in terms of like making it because yes yeah. it's sort of a strange notion but but i do remember when echolalia came out and it just seemed to be everywhere you know yeah. we would walk down the street in your local kind of shopping area and you would hear it coming out of shops like it yeah. was just like Everyone seemed to have it on at the same time. That was your first platinum record as well, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. Yeah. 
I think we got really sick of ourselves. I remember <laughs> I remember just thinking, yeah. I really hate the look of myself in all of this stuff. I really hate seeing oh, yeah. the video. I hate hearing this song. I don't want to hear myself talk anymore. I just want to shut yeah. the fuck up. That's when that for yeah. me was certainly like, didn't help that the, the, the big video from that was you guys just getting blasted by a wind machine the whole time <laughs> as well. Like not the best look. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, I mean, it was classic something for Kate, a horror show, you know, apocalyptic, yeah. apocalyptic kind of scenario. But, yeah, I think I think to answer your question, it's when you start to hate yourself. Yeah. <laughs> that's when you've made it. That's, that's when you go, when you've oh, made it, God, sure. somebody turn yeah. it off. I don't oh, know yeah. <laughs> when you start to want to hide. The self-loathing begins, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we're obviously at a point now where, you know, we're talking about something for Kate in the present tense again. You guys have kind of cycled back into doing this after, you know, several years away and off doing other things and things like that. Like, when you come back to this band, like, do you feel like the motivation to continue to, to write and record and, and eventually, God willing, tour as something for Kate, like, do you feel that's the same as when you both were respectively initially part of this band? Or do you feel like it's kind of changed contextually as you've gotten older? I mean, I, I think, yeah, I think, I think lots of, lots of things have changed. I mean, you know, you go, I mean, we've been doing this since we were really young and, mm. you know, so we, we only know this as a job. We only have ever done yeah. this. So we've gone through, you know, from like pivotal younger points of our lives to, I feel like everybody's kind of watched and, and we've gone through this, um, you know, from being basically 19, 20 years old, um, well, the boys signing a record deal straight out of high school to having kids and living in other countries yeah. and, you know, doing all this stuff. I feel I feel like so much has changed, but, the, you know, it's, it sounds cliched, but the, the, the funny thing is that with all that stuff in the background, you, you know, we get on stage and it's exactly the same feeling that I have, that I had, you know... 15 years ago or whenever when I look at Clint and we play this song or that song it's exactly the same feeling um it's a really strange thing um and it's really it feels very watertight it feels like it's a thing that could as a rhythm section anyway um it's a thing that could only happen between he and I and these songs and you know it doesn't really matter what time it is whether it's 1999 or 2009 or whatever it's yeah. it's this same thing so in so in so many ways it hasn't changed and when the three of us uh, are on stage touring together i think that that we're i feel like we're in a little bit of a bubble we share that with people who have been there on that journey and it's pretty it's yeah. a really a weird but amazing thing to know yeah. pr- that so much has happened in their lives as well and that we've all kind of gone through this 20 years sort of together you know a lot gets made of you know that our last record was 7 years ago 8 years ago whatever it was yeah but we have played shows every one of those 8 years mm. um yeah, yeah. so we have not gone away and you know and uh, and are now coming back. We've just been too busy to write new songs. But we've we've played gigs every year, and you know we're obviously in each other's lives um, constantly. Yeah. And it's so it doesn't doesn't feel to us uh, like there's been a going away and a coming back. It's just it's just a matter of you know there, there, there's lots of other things in our lives, and um, 
and I've also done lots of other musical things like solo things but I've also you know like been off playing with like playing David Bowie songs with a bunch of his band members and stuff and there's all there's just projects to me everything just feels like projects and something for Kate is obviously the home base project that is sort of the core at the core of everything feel like there's just as long as things are being created and and uh enjoyment is being had playing live or whatever then it's just all part of a musical journey that you know that i don't see any end to i feel better about something for kate when i say better i i feel like we are better i feel like we are better than we've ever been that we've like that the songs we've been writing more recently are you know just another step big step forward in our craft and i also just feel like our live shows are just like we we just play together better there's such an instinct and such a chemistry now that all all the worries that might have been there in the past about whether we're getting it right or whatever it's just Mm. none of that stuff's there anymore it just feels like it's yeah um, really natural i i think that's an incredible attitude to have yeah for sure all right so we'll wrap it up here but before we do that i ask this of all of my guests and now it is your turn something for kate i want to know about the best and the worst shows that you have ever played Hmm. so feel free to start on either or you can either have a uh, a happy ending or classic something for kate just have a searing crushing load to go out (laughs) on so the the choice is yours I reckon. I mean, uh, sorry. I'm just going to jump mm. in and go first because I can remember like the the one that sticks out to me was quite recently last year. Last year, beginning of last year, yeah, March last year, I think we played in Brisbane at, at the Beer Insider Festival, um, uh-huh. and we just had a particularly great show. It just everything just seemed right, and it just felt. You know, when everything is just going right and it and it feels like you are just living right inside that moment and that sticks out to me as, like, perhaps the best show we've ever played or one, one of them. Yeah, wow. Mm. I just... I mean, I just remember coming off stage from that show just, just feeling very good. Mm, perfect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll try and think of a horrible one now. <laughs> oh, absolutely. <Yeah. laughs> Steph, what kind of comes to mind for you? Like, it, it doesn't even have to be a something for Kate show. It can just be kind of anything across your career that you've gotten to do. Yeah, it's a it's a hard one because so, you know there that you have horrible shows for different reasons. You know, and so, sometimes yeah. it's so, it's not something that's visible to the crowd at all. You know, like maybe you play a show back in the old days where you'd have a flu. Or, you know, you'd have this awful sickness and you just have to get through it. I remember yeah. I remember some of those. I remember some of those, you know, really long tours and you'd be towards the end of a tour and you'd be, you know, I'd be asleep in the van and you'd be in a country town and you'd get up and play a show and, you know, you'd, you'd be in this weird headspace because you're just, like, really ill. Yeah. You know, those kinds of things. Um, I do remember, like, not long after joining Something for Kate, uh, some very loose shows where you know i remember playing one up at the snow where clint just stopped playing drums and was standing next to me bashing my bass with his drumsticks and paul was jumping into the crowd and off a fireplace you know into the crowd like and all this stuff and i remember thinking "Mm, uh, you know i don't know if i signed up for this because yeah i'm just not really (laughs) what have i gotten myself into (laughs) yeah i mean i knew it was gonna be like i knew there were gonna be highs and lows but I just, yeah, I, I'm I'm a little bit of a control freak, and I I was not very comfortable with that scenario. 
so you know there there are those like there's not one particular gig but you know I but in terms of really good shows I do remember like there's been lots of really great shows really beautiful like the 20 year tour we did uh, I felt like every show on that tour was just yeah that was just, incredible it was so, it was so I, I literally have the tour poster of that on my on my bedroom wall right so, right like, yeah it was it was yeah. it was quite an emotional tour and they were very yeah. long shows and I just felt like I felt like um, you know people were with us I felt like we were all really uh, in one thing together so you know I thought that whole tour was really great um, they sang happy birthday to us every night that was <laughs> yeah. pretty special yeah, yeah. <laughs> so those were those were definitely a highlight I remembered a shocker I played in Canada I played a solo show in Canada last year and uh, mm-hmm. about halfway through the set my mm-hmm. left hand uh, just stopped working it just seized up and like my finger was like stuck to my palm and I couldn't move it and it was like my brain just stopped communicating with my hand and um, I remember just having to stop playing the guitar and just sort of looking at my hand uh, and wondering if I was having a stroke or something because I just couldn't right. make my hand move uh, and luckily it was just a, a kind of awful muscle spasm uh, but I had to stand there for five minutes and sort of talk to the audience and try to be funny whilst I was also trying to work out why I couldn't I had no control over my hand oh so dear. I just I just had that was pretty scary <laughs> but it's fine yeah fine. <laughs> it's fine now I can imagine Oh, that's good. That's good. Like, did you see a doctor? Like, what? What was the? What was the situation? Luckily, we had a friend in in the crowd uh, who was a doctor, and he just said, obviously, a, a terrible muscle spasm, and and uh, yeah, probably the result of just being, you know, having been on uh, a long international flight, and you know, sleeping in a in a different bed, and just kind of. You know, I'm very tall and I, I get neck and shoulder yeah. complaints, but uh, it's all good. It happens, yeah. That's great. Even even through the shitty situation, there's there's a there's a happy ending there. Like you're all you're all good. You can still play guitar. Yeah, exactly. It's all about stretching. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's it. <laughs> uh, the album is the Modern Medieval, and it is out today. Congratulations. Oh, thank, thank you, Dave. Thank you. It's a wonderful record. Uh, I'm very excited for people to hear it. So now that you're done with this podcast, go give it a listen. I I reckon you will quite enjoy it. Paul, Steph, thank you so, so much for taking the time to speak to me today. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you. Pleasure. Thank you, David. I'm David James Young, and all my friends are You've just listened to a not-for-print podcast, independent Australian podcasting.